You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage two. Today we are in Burgos. Uh, yeah, so first I had to sprint back to the wheel of, I think it was Molano and Matthews, but I didn't see the images. Uh, and then I had to launch again for the final sprint, and yeah, Matthews had to pass, I think, Molano, so I had to go right, right, and it was just maybe a split second where I lose some speed. But uh, yeah, like I said, Phillips on the left, he was fast, and uh, yeah, I guess he's a well-deserved winner today. Like they say, pressure makes diamonds, and uh, today it was barely or almost a diamond so we're gonna just try and, and keep going and for sure there is a win somewhere in this world well Daniel we opened there with Fabio Jakobsen we heard from him in last night's episode of course today a bunch sprint pressure and he was up there makes diamonds what a quote does it though pressure does and it? heat pressure and heat and today there was pressure and there was You've heat you've become in the last hour um it's worth being a aficionado <laughs> of haggis Diamond. What's the, what's the name this come for from? A, the fishing out of haggis. What's the name for a diamond specialist? It, it's a speck. Uh, I don't know. I, I'll, I will have looked that up by the. I'll have Wikipedia that by the I, end I'm of the episode. I'm not. Whatever the name is, I'm not quite there yet. But um, well, it was a, it was an eye catching or an ear catching quote, wasn't it, from Jakobsen? And I guess it was. It, it, one of the stories of this Vuelta would be, can Jakobsen return to the top and win stages here? He's won stages at the Vuelta before. He is still recovering, of course, from his horrific crash at the Tour of Poland last year. And he went very close today, didn't he? It was, uh, I mean, we were watching the finish with Dutch and Belgian colleagues, weren't we? And one was shouting, Jakobsen. The other one was shouting, Philipsen. And it, it was uh, very close. They went either side of the UAE lead out. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, it was hard to hard to tell as they crossed the line who had won. Would have been a great story had Jakobsen won, of course. Um, well, is it about? It's it's slightly less than a year since his crash in Poland, isn't it? Or was it just over a year? Just over a year. Um, would have been a fantastic story, but it, it's a good story anyway because ja- um, Jasper Philipsen came very close a couple of times in the Tour de France and today completed his team's clean sweep of the first bunch sprints in every Grand Tour this year. And what a story that is, and we'll, we'll talk a bit about it later on, because they're a team who, at the start of the year, people would have said was all about one rider, Matthew van der Poel, uh, but they have more than proven their worth and proven that they've deserved to be at the Giro and at the Vuelta as well. And, you know, people question that too, that, you know, that they perhaps were taking... The place of, of local teams, of, of teams belonging to those countries, but they've um, they've more than deserved it. Further cause to celebrate for Philipson today because he's also acquired a nickname. El Jamón Volante, the, the flying ham. Of the course, we've ham. had El Sanguinacho Volante, Simon Yates, in the Giro d'Italia a couple of years ago, the flying black pudding. We're in Burgos, which is famous for its morcilla, with, with the, the blood sausage, uh, black pudding of this area which we've talked about quite a lot over the last couple of days and today we were reminded that Philipson is is from a place in Belgium called Ham H-A-M Hamon in Spanish and um, rather, rather out because he does he does go very well in the Vuelta when he won a stage though, last Adam Yates year. has to be the flying Morthia no? he could be but he wasn't flying today was he? La he was one of the Volante would that be correct? 
Uh, yeah, it would. It La Marcia Volante. But he wasn't flying today. No, and we'll talk about that a bit later on. Um, we are going to cross over to Lionel Burney and not Watford in a moment to get the, the story of what happened in not today's Watford stage. Not Watford and not Burgos as well. Not Burgos. Uh, Lionel Burney and not, and not Burgos. We've got lots of interviews coming up. Daniel had a policy day of only interviewing 21-year-olds, so we'll hear from them. Uh, I interviewed Michel Cornelis, uh, the sports director at in Phoenix. We're going to hear from Max Schachman, who uh, came off in that in that crash as well, which has become a kind of tradition of the flat opening stages of Grand Tours. A big crash, this one with about four and a half kilometres to go, and it's it's uh, cost some riders some time. But without further ado, should we cross over to Lionel Burney? Is Lionel Burney our Duke of Wellington? The Duke of Wellington was sort of driven out of Burgos in 1812 by the French, I think. Um, over to Lionel. That was stage two, which started south of the city of Burgos and looped 166.7 kilometres through the sun-baked countryside, finishing back in the city with the anticipated bunch sprint. Given the course profile, and particularly with an uphill finish tomorrow, perhaps it was not a surprise that it was a carefully controlled day, although it could have been very different if the wind had blown. As it was, conditions were fairly calm, and so we had a sort of paint-by-numbers early Grand Tour sprint stage. I must admit, I did have something of a late afternoon siesta. The events of about 100 kilometres to go to 75 kilometres to go are a bit of a mystery to me, but I gather not an awful lot happened. When I woke up, the same three riders were away. Three riders from Spanish wildcard teams who got away very early on. They were Diego Rubio, riding for very much the home team, Burgos BH, and two Vuelta debutants, Sergio Roman Martin of Caja Rural and Xavier Miquel Asparen of Euskaltel. And their lead got to almost four minutes very early on and then was gradually pulled back in and held at a minute and a half or two minutes. And then when I woke up from my siesta, it was down to about a minute. And at that point, the peloton actually eased up and allowed the gap to open up again because no one wanted to catch the break too soon. It stayed more or less like that until 31 and a half kilometers to go when Rubio pushed on without the other two. And then he was caught with 20 kilometers to go by the peloton, which at that point was being led by Astana. Now they were trying to lead out Alex Adamburu for the intermediate sprint. Adamburu had had that fantastic time trial yesterday and was wearing the green jersey on loan from Primoz Roglic of course and he wanted to take some points in the intermediate sprint to give himself a chance of wearing the jersey by rights tomorrow and he did that finishing second to Fabio Jakobsen. Then it was all down to the finish and the inevitable crash as so often happens. It was a strange one this with around 4.2 kilometers to go. It seemed to be on a fairly straightforward stretch of slightly uphill road, but there was a touch of wheels in the middle, quite near the front of the bunch. Quite a few riders went down. A couple of Bora Hansgrohe riders were on the floor for a while. German champion Max Schachmann was certainly held up. And crucially, it was outside the three kilometer to go mark, which meant that anyone who was delayed knew they would be losing time overall. At the finish, it looked like it was going to be a shootout between Michael Matthews and Juan Sebastian Milano. Milano won a couple of stages of the Vuelta a Burgos last week, remember? And the pair of them were going shoulder to shoulder. But it was as if they were sprinting to an imaginary finish line, 50 metres short of the real one, because they'd simply gone too early. And as they faded, Jasper Philipsen and Fabio Jakobsen came to the fore. And it was the Belgian Philipsen, who won a stage of last year's Vuelta as well, who got across the line just ahead of Jakobsen. And that gives Alpecin Fenix 
the Grand Tour Grand Slam. They've won a stage in all of this year's Grand Tours. Tim Mollier at the Giro and Tour and Matthew Van Der Poel at the Tour, of course. For Jakobsen, he'll have to wait for another shot at a Vuelta stage. He did win his last bunch sprint at the Vuelta in Madrid a couple of years ago. And remember, it's only a year and 10 days since that terrible crash at the Tour of Poland. I know he's had a couple of wins since uh, his comeback, but to be mixing it in the bunch sprints at the end of a nervy finish like that, uh, it kind of boggles the mind, really. So anyway, it was Philipson, Jakobsen, Matthews, Milano and Adam Bulu, the top five over the line. Unfortunately for Adam Bulu, he didn't quite do enough to keep the green jersey on his shoulders. Uh, Philipson, Jakobsen and Adam Bulu are all tied on 50 points, but Philipson will wear it because he had the better stage placing today. Of those who lost time, Adam Yates conceded 31 seconds. There was a group that came in at 38 seconds containing Jack Haig, Hugh Carthy, Wout Pauls and Mark Padun. Rafael Maika lost a minute and 11, Pavel Sivakov a minute and 15, Shackman 2.35 and Tom Pidcock who was up there in the intermediate sprint and then sat up on the run-in is at uh, 4.16 uh, when they got to the finish line. Overall only a small change, Roglic of course still in the red jersey but Adam Bulu has trimmed his lead to 4 seconds and Michael Matthews is up to 3rd just 10 seconds back but it will be the climbers who come to the 4 tomorrow with the summit finish at almost 1500 metres so back to you guys in Spain and hopefully you have uh, something nice lined up for dinner You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España Powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. I'm Nathan Smith, I'm 20 years old, I'm from the UK and I ride for Team Nova Nordisk Development Squad. Obviously last year the team couldn't put on a in-person talent ID camp as they normally would because of obvious, obvious reasons really, so they partnered up with uh, the Sufferfest and and yeah they put on a virtual a virtual one using Zwift as well and Wahoo trainers and everything so and then yeah we had group rides we had races we had zoom calls as well with the staff with um, presentations and everything and then yeah I just went along joined along um, did everything and then Got got an email afterwards and asking me to join the development team for this year. So they generally take people from the talent ID. So I knew what I knew I knew what I wanted to happen, and I was hopeful. But obviously, you never know if it will happen or not. Thank you very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. We heard a bit there from uh, Nathan Smith, one of the the writers on the Novo Nordisk development team. I met him at the Novo Nordisk talent ID camp that I went to a few weeks ago now in Normandy. Um, if you would like to enter our competition to win three months' worth of Super Sapiens devices, go to thecyclingpodcast.com and you'll find out there how to record your 60 seconds or less of audio telling us how and why you would use Super Sapiens. We'll be hearing some of your 
entries over the course of the Welter. Well, Daniel, a bunch sprint. I had a quick conversation with our, our old pal Mitch Docker just before we started recording, um, former lead-out man him, himself, and he was he watched today with great interest because there are a couple of really fast sprinters here. You know, there's not a, a lot of sprinters, but there are a couple of good ones. Uh, I was reminded as Matthew Trenton let it out how a few years ago he was so dominant in these bunch sprints in the Vuelta in a year when there were perhaps weren't too many of the, the very top sprinters. But there are, there are two or three good sprinters here. He was lead-out man today. Mitch said he got it wrong. He, he did a very strong lead-out, but, but got it wrong by going down the middle and leaving Milano to be attacked on Someone either side. Someone else who did the same thing was Luca Mezkic, also a very good lead-out for Matthews, went straight down the middle. Yeah, and, and as Mitch said, seemed to have a chat with Matthews about 200 metres to go as well. Um, Matthews put himself in a brilliant position to win today. Um, he was in the perfect position to win, but he doesn't. he's not quite... The, the kind of sprinter that a Jakobsen or a Philipson is. Do you know is. what Matthew's problem today was? He said after the stage that his heart rate never went above 100. And it was what, probably even in the sprint? <laughs> that was what I took from that. My heart rate was above 100. Probably Watching not enough sprint. to win a bunch sprint in the World Cup. What yeah. would be alarm? It reminded me, actually, there's a famous interview with Alan Piper when Alan Piper was a rider. And I think this was in, this was either in 1990 or 1991 Tour de France. And he was asked after a few stages, who's going to win the Tour? And he said, ah, Claudio Chiappucci, mate. And he told a story of how he'd been riding alongside Claudio Chiappucci in the peloton. And Chiappucci, um, well, Alan had inquired how, you know, how well was Chiappucci going? And Chiappucci just pointed to his heart rate monitor. And his heart rate monitor was under 100 and I think Allen's was was getting close to 150. Funny, in those days it was all about heart rate monitors. That was the cutting edge of technology. Now it would be all about power meters, wouldn't it? It's funny how things have changed. Um, yeah, well, let's move on from Claudio Chiappucci and his, and his heart rate. It's uh, <laughs> uh, very low, though, isn't it? 100, <laughs> that's not even, is that even... No, it's not even zone two for no, no, very, those very of you much who zone, um, are zone, au with these zone things. Zero. And it was... It's extremely hot. I, we're always told that heart rate, well, I've seen this myself, heart rate goes up by around, you know, often 10 beats in sort of 30 degree heat as against sort of 15 degree heat or 10 degree heat. So 100 or below 100 is very low. Pretty low. Uh, one thing we observed today was when we woke up, it was A, quite cold and B, the wind was very blowy and strong. And we did fancy crosswinds today. The wind seemed to blow quite hard before the start and then immediately after the finish, but during the stage itself, it didn't really deliver. So we didn't have the crossers, we didn't have the echelons, and we had a fairly conventional kind of flat stage with a, a breakaway uh, from the, the Spanish teams uh, were represented there, and then a, a big bunch sprint uh, with a crash with four and a half kilometers to go. We'll get onto that a bit later on. But the sprint itself, I mean, Jasper Philipson, you know, they, they tried to give him a, a really good chance at the at the Tour de France, and he couldn't quite uh, get a stage win there. Um, and he, he's a rider who, when he emerged two or three years ago, was well, great, great things were expected of him. I think there was a lot of surprise when he stepped away, stepped back from the World Tour at the end of last year, joining Alpes and Fenix. Um, but, as I said in the, in the first part, that's a team that has punched well above its weight this year and has certainly proven that it's far more than a Matthew van der Poel vehicle. Yeah, and they remind me of the Sunweb of a few years ago in the sense that they, they've created not only one team, not only a plan A of 
or very fast riders and a great lead-out train around Merlia or even Van der Poel or Philipson. They've got maybe 10 or 12 riders who can be slotted in and out of lead-out trains, you know, with the likes of Krieger was there today. Um, even, we're going to even hear from a Vuelta debutant, 21-year-old. Well, of course. Of course. Later in the podcast, who slotted in Tobias Bayer. Um, but they've got a lot of riders of that nature. They know what they are, what they're not. They... They, they're well aware of the fact that come the second and third week of Grand Tours, they're going to be a lot less prominent than in the first week. But it's certainly worked for them so They've got Sasha Modelo, who is uh, you know, for, formerly a, a, a top sprinter himself. They have, they've recruited very cleverly, you know, it, it, it appears. And um, Well, let's hear from the sports director. I went up to their bus at the finish. They were cock-a-hoop there. Uh, Michel Cornelis is a sort of veteran Dutch sports director. He's been around a few teams. I spent... Uh, day in a team car with him at the Tour of Britain a few years ago um, and he talked a little bit about Philipson's win and how important it was for him and about how the, the Rudhoff brothers who are Matthew van der Poel's longtime managers they've looked after him from a young age and they now run the team together Philip and Christoph um, how clever they've been in, in putting this team together I mean an incredible achievement you won stages in all three Grand Tours I guess that was the goal coming into the Welter yeah of course, it was uh, a goal, but it's not so easy to do. But we were have a good morale this morning because we say, yeah, we win the second stage in the Giro, the second in the Tour. So why not the second in the Vuelta? And everybody believes in it. And I think we saw a very strong team uh, the last five Ks. It was the plan. And we, we say we do our own sprint uh, here. And we don't watch to the other teams. And it, and it worked out fantastic. It's, I mean, all, yeah, it's fantastic if you win, of course. Eh, but you make a plan. It's not always working. But today, the plan was completely working. Jasper uh, has gone close hasn't he um, and he's been in a supporting role as well we saw him in the supporting role at the tour so he's been knocking at the door this is well deserved for him. Yeah it's also very, very mental important for him uh, that he wins now because he was so close every time in the, in the Tour de France and in the last day on the Champs-Élysées then he was beaten by uh, Wout van Aert so now it's very important also for his mind uh, that, he's, that he's winning here against Jacobs who was also on a high level again so uh, yeah, I think he's very happy with it and it's very important for him for the next coming days. I mean, at the start of the season, a lot of people would have said this team is all about Matthew van der Poel. Um, it must be very satisfying to have proven, you know, and a lot of people would have questioned even your right to be in these Grand Tours. Yeah. It, must, it must feel good to, to have, have answered some of those questions. And then I must give a big compliment to the Boat Brothers uh, Roodhoofd. They always say uh, we want a team. Mathieu is very important for the team. But thanks to Mathieu, also the other riders believe more in themselves and everybody comes on a higher level. And uh, I think also Mathieu is happy that the team is more than only Mathieu van der Poel. Because it, it puts all the pressure on him and yeah. we show that we have more than more good riders than Mathieu. You've been involved in other teams. I think I spent a day with you at the Tour of Britain in the team, uh, the, the Garmin team car many years yeah. ago. Um, is there something about this team though? Is it the fact that van der Poel's in the team? Does that sort of take some of the pressure off some of the riders? Is there... You mentioned the brothers there, very, very important to the running of the team, but what is there some magic in the team? I think thanks to Mathieu van der Poel, everybody works so hard for him, and then they, they see that themselves are also better riders. When they ride in the front and they work for somebody else, and yeah, it brings them also to a higher level. That's, that's thanks to Mathieu, because otherwise they, when they're riding for themselves, they're more careful and they're more in the back, and, be, yeah, and now they work hard and they see it, it brings results in the front. And that's important for the for the guys and it opened their eyes that they can also win themselves. And what else can we expect from the team in this Vuelta? Yeah, if you have one, it always stays for more. Eh? But uh, we're already happy that we have one and now we can uh, 
We have also more better, also other riders. Eh? Jay Fine is uh, very good. Thomas Bayer was very good in Burgos. Plankart was very good. It, it, it brings, it's always good for the morale if you win uh, quickly a stage. And uh, hope that we can win more uh, in this Vuelta. Did, did Jay have a little crash today? Yeah, his hand is very bad. But uh, we, we, the doctor is here. Maybe he looked to it and cleaned it up. And the morale is good. And that's also important. That was Michel Cornelis. A very happy Michel Cornelis at the finish. Um, celebrating Jasper Philipson's win. And as I said earlier, he was also um, uh, giving credit to the Rudhoft brothers, Philip and Christoph. If you want to know a bit more about that setup, um, have a listen to our special that we released last year. It's just called Van Der Poel. It's mainly an interview with uh, Matthew Van Der Poel's father, Andre Van Der Poel, but there's also uh, Christoph uh, Rudhoft in there who talks a bit about managing Van Der Poel and about putting this team together that is now Alps and Fenix and uh, what, they, what they've been trying to do. It's going to be interesting to see how Philips and, and Merlia reconcile roles or cohabit in the future, isn't it? Because... Um, well, we were with a, a Belgian colleague earlier today, Guy van Landenberg, and he, he was talking to us about how Philipson was a little bit put out when Merlier was inserted into the Tour de France team. That wasn't originally the plan. He was going to do the Giro, but he's really climbed the ladder of world sprinting this year, hasn't he, Merlier? And he's, he's pretty much top tier. Um, he's, he's among the five or six guys um, who... who I think everyone considers the fastest in the world. So going forward, they're going to have some tough decisions to make. And, you know, the tour, it, it was some days for Merlier, some days for Philipson, a little bit like Trek have tried to do in the past with Max Pedersen and Jasper Stuyven and, and others. Um, but, yeah, there will be some tough calls probably to make in the coming months and years. Did I mention that that Vanderpool special is for friends of the podcast? And if you want to sign up as a friend of the podcast, go to thecyclingpodcast.com and you'll find that among lots of other episodes there um it's uh yes yeah, it's, it's a great story and uh the other story was Jakobsen. i mean that that too as he told us uh, last night would have been a fairy tale had he had he won he's still got lots more chances in this welta um and it is it is great to see him certainly um sprinting at a very high level again um he said last night he's not he's not scared of of these bunch sprints he's overcome any fear he might have had he, do, he doesn't want to crash clearly but um, it's quite a feat also not just to get back to his old level physically but to be able to contest these bunches because we have seen in the past you know bunch sprinters are you know they are um, they're, they're doing what they do depends so much on, on, on bravery courage on almost blocking out the fear that must be there and he's done incredibly well within a year to come back and just be able to contest these, these finishes again and I would suggest as well the Vuelta is the best of the Grand Tours the best place to do it to reacquaint himself with that feeling because usually the roads are, the roads into the towns even are straighter a bit less road furniture than we see at the Tour de France and at the Giro the weather tends to be more consistent and there aren't as many big sprint trains so it's usually today's not today's crash notwithstanding a, a bit of a cleaner run in and he has the speed I mean today as, as we heard in his interview he had the slightly longer line to the finish, having to go around Matthews and Philipson had the slightly shorter line up, up the inside after the perfect lead out by Matteo Trenton for both of them. Um, so, you know, the speed is there and he was coming pretty fast at the end. So I'm sure he's uh, got what it takes to win a stage here. Still couldn't get the better of El Hamon Volante, the flying ham. Do you think he's going to stick? No. Uh, <laughs> talking of Hamon. Richard, last night, we, um, well, we gave this a big build-up, didn't we? we? We went 
to yeah, a restaurant so called La Hamada, not El Hamon, La Hamada, um, which, as we talked about, probably ad nauseam yesterday, uh, is run, was run, set up by uh, a gentleman who finished second or third. We weren't quite sure in Spanish. I'm not sure chef, even call him a And you were I not a impressed. Crook, a crook. I mean, it was. Charlotte. I have to say, I have to call call it out for it. Is I, I read a fantastic review uh, from the Observatory by Jay Rayner of a fancy new place in London. I recommend anybody to go and read this. I think it's at the Dorchester Hotel. Um, he absolutely slams this place. I'm not going to do quite the same, uh, but it was a huge disappointment. I would say because we were there at lunchtime. There were lots of staff, all uniform, all well presented, uniform. Lots of staff buzzing around. The food coming out of the kitchen looked good. I had high hopes for last night. And what I was served, Daniel, was a, 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 a bit of fatty steak in a roll and, and a very few chips. I should caveat this by telling the listeners that your reviewer tonight is a gentleman who, when he first tasted gazpacho many oh, years ago in, I don't know, Kirkcaldy or London, wherever, it, wherever it is he's from, um, he sent it back to the Kirkcaldy, kitchen. No he, complained, to anyone in Kirkcaldy. he complained that it was cold <laughs> and sent it back to the kitchen. That's true. That was in 2008 and it was in, in a cafe on the King's Road in London and it was a buffet and I, I, I served myself some soup from the buffet, went to my table and I it went back and complained that not it was sure cold. a man of that gastronomic really sophistication should that. be doing but you're detracting here Daniel this, this place last night was on your recommendation it's your responsibility I you know I, I trust your judgement on these things and your judgement let us down last night well Richard final possibly the final bit of Epicurean content this evening I promised this feature in the Vuelta Pinchos y Pinchazos Pinchos being this kind of tapas that they have in north of Spain on cocktail sticks. Pinchazos being punctures are also injections, <laughs> alarmingly. But it can also be a COVID jab. So there's going to be some kind of mention of something vaguely related to one of those themes every day. Today it was going to be pinchos because I read about these pinchos that Burgos is semi-famous for. And where we were this afternoon, the suburb of Gamonal has got a lot of bars that serve these vinagrillos. And these sort of pinchos that are, well, they're pickles really, razor clams, what else is the um, anchovies, olives with a cocktail stick stuck through them and all sort of marinated in, in a kind of vinegar dressing. And we were, we were very close to some famous places to get these vinagrillos at the finish, but it's Sunday and everywhere Daniel, was Daniel, someone's taking our photograph, what's going on? And... It was uh, the the place that I'd earmarked was closed, which was um, very disappointing. Hey, one reason I was very keen to go to this p- place this evening, Richard, um, is because present company taken into consideration. I'm travelling with a Scotsman, and I read a review of this bar, which raved about how cheap it was. You could get two glasses of white wine and some of these vinagrillos for one euro twenty. <laughs> Stop stereotyping. Uh, well, I hope you can uh, deliver us somewhere a bit better tonight, Daniel. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to our long-time sponsor, Science in Sport. If you would like 25% off all your Science in Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the discount code SISCP25. S-I-S-C-P-25. 
CP25. And thanks once again to Science and Sport for their support of the cycling podcast. We are very grateful. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a bad moment for us today. Um, Jordi, our sprinter, crashed. Uh, I also couldn't stop uh, anymore because... I just came with more speed from the back to bring him up to the front and that little kicker. But yeah, unfortunately, that was the moment they crashed in front of us. It was quite, yeah, quite, quite hectic in the bunch, but uh, still quite okay. Uh, despite the crash, it was it was quite okay. Yeah. And well, you've got some problems with the the injuries of your teammates today, but. Did you already think that tomorrow's stage to pick on Blanca might be an opportunity for you? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's an opportunity for me. Uh, I'm there to help Felix for the GC and yeah, that's my, my goal, my task for tomorrow. You're looking more at the small climbs at the end of stages, the two and three kilometer climbs at the end of stages. Is that the case? Yeah, I will see. Maybe, probably, or one of the days in the breakaway. Uh, I will I will just get into the race and make a plan later. Well, that was Max Schachmann, um, who came off pretty badly in the crash. And um, I get, he was sort of the, the biggest name actually who actually fell, I think. But others were others lost time as a result of it. You've been well, studying he, the, the footage, haven't you? His team came off very badly, Richard. Team did, yeah. Schach himself... Shack attack. Uh, he came down, had a little bit of graze knee. He was bleeding at the finish, but was pretty pretty unfazed. Uh, certainly, uh, as far as his own injuries were concerned. But the same could not be said of Patrick Gamper, his Austrian teammate, and Jordi Meus as well, the Belgian sprinter who I think was supposed to sprint for Bora today, but he also came down. And they both finished those guys, but didn't look. Yeah, particularly happy when they did or in a particularly good way will we keep our fingers crossed that they they're able to start tomorrow Gamper looked at one point he was sort of holding his shoulder and you feared the old broken collarbone didn't you but there were other riders caught up in the crash you've been studying the footage Adam Yates was was just behind the crash when it happened he didn't actually go down but he did sort of have to pick his way through it Hugh Carthy was even further back and that was just inattention wasn't it four and a half kilometers to go if you're here to try and finish on the podium you really have to be further up the bunch well particularly you know we talked yesterday about Hugh Carthy having lost time quite significant time yesterday in the first stage Yates this has been a, an issue that he's had I, I don't think he sees it as a problem but certain director sportives he's had would have liked him to ride a bit close to the front of the peloton in the past he's become kind of notorious and there are there are a handful of riders or even gc riders who have this style of moving around the peloton or not moving around the peloton staying at the back most of the time and yates i, I mean he was he was sort of middle to back of the peloton he didn't have a teammate right next to him right in front of him as i say some guys prefer that way of riding rather than fighting for positions as they go into the final three kilometers and Carapaz and Bernal were certainly closer to the front there's a lot of luck involved Roglic narrowly missed the crash as well he was a fair way back but you know it, it just reminded me of what Theo Gagenhart said uh, a week or so into the Tour de France about Ineos's three leader strategy at the Tour de France it's impossible to protect three guys um, and Yates came into this Vuelta as, as one of 
Ineos's notional leaders, and he's already lost. How many seconds did he lose today, Rich? 28 seconds? 31 31 seconds. seconds. I mean, so that, it's obviously all, bad all news for that and the strategy. And the strategy, but all the gains yesterday as well. He rode, he rode so well yesterday relative to a lot of the other GC riders, um, and all those gains kind of wiped out today. I mean, was it a surprise that he was on, on his own when the crash happened, and, and also afterwards? I mean, you know, there wasn't... Uh, you know, had it been Bernal, say, would would uh, would one of the with the Pucci or even a Sivakov or somebody have gone back or Narvaez or somebody uh, to 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 wait for him or to to try and help him a bit because he, he seemed to be on his own afterwards. There wasn't a lot of time, and it's pretty frantic at that moment in the race. Yeah, and it's difficult to judge having not seen him the, throughout those last four kilometers to to see whether there was indeed a teammate helping him. And there's, him. Not, a lot, it, and there's not a lot they can actually do no, at that point it, either. It, it doesn't look like it from the results. It doesn't. There are no teammates around him in the results. Um, so I think he simply rode those last 4.2 kilometers on his own, tried to limit losses as best as he could. But Carthy and Yates weren't the only hitters, big hitters to lose time. Yesterday, well, we talked about the Bahrain victorious leadership hierarchy didn't we and we having spoken to jack haig it seemed pretty clear to us that lander is their sole leader at least um, at the moment haig himself lost a bit of time he got caught behind the crash as well um almost 40 seconds and mark padun who a lot of people thought was going to be the well breakout star or um the the giant killer of this uh España. he he underperformed i would say yesterday in the time trial and he also lost a fair bit of time today again 38 seconds with linkedin jobs we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need marketing wizards found them software engineers found that project manager i could never seem to hire and found linkedin jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience in fact 86 percent of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com spoken that's linkedin.com spoken terms and conditions apply well daniel there is a slightly more relaxed feel to the well to the late starts the the sunshine the heat uh induces a sort of languid kind of atmosphere heart rates on the place sub 100 heart rates yeah we're all very relaxed here and the bunch sprints perhaps aren't as chaotic and frantic and crash riddled as they are at the Giro and the Tour um, I don't know it just, it just doesn't feel like there's as much at stake you know at the, the Tour the intensity is, is part of the reason for the crashes the, the, the sort of fear that the riders are, are riding under here there's just a, a different atmosphere we tend to see it as a less daunting prospect, certainly for inexperienced riders, uh, neopros. We, we tend to see neopros at the Vuelta, which isn't necessarily the case at the Giro, certainly not the case at the Tour de France very often. And there were a lot. You pointed out, didn't you, yesterday, Rich, the number of sub or under 22-year-olds that are here at the Vuelta. I think it was seven or eight. Um, I think there's seven 21-year-olds and two 20-year-olds, which and, is extraordinary, really. And taking my lead from that, Richard... I announced at the start this morning I was I going announced. You I, put out a press release. I put out a press release to you in the car that I was only going to interview 21 year olds at the start and I picked out two who have caught my eye I'm interested to follow their fortunes over the next three weeks Tobias Bayer the Austrian rider for Alpes in Phoenix who surprised everyone I think a couple of weeks ago at the Vuelta Burgos on the stage Rich 
over Picon Blanco, where we're going tomorrow, uh, the first mountain stage of this Vuelta a Burgos. And the other one was an Australian, a Queenslander, mate, called Sebastian Berwick. Who was sorry, had, sorry, Australians <laughs> who are had, listening. Who has had a slightly unconventional route into the World Tour. He was with the AG2R under-23 team and... Um, also a, a team back home in Australia and has been given a three-year contract by Israel Startup Nation which indicates that they have a lot of faith in him and he's a GC rider but we're going to hear now from both of those Bayer first and Beric second. Yeah, my family came here to surprise me for my first Grand Tour. Uh, yeah, actually, they're, they're also here at the start now and will be at the finish today as well. And tomorrow we go to Picon Blanco, which in the Vuelta a Burgos, I think was a bit of a surprise for you, wasn't it? Because you were climbing with the best riders and you don't consider yourself a climber, do you? No, actually not really. Um, I would say like more uh, all-rounder classics type, uh, but I was surprised by myself and for sure. I have good memories on Picon Blanco. Oh, I mean, uh, I know I can, I can climb well, and the team asked me to, to give it a try. And so I just tried and uh, tried to hang on for as long as I can, but for sure I didn't expect to, to ride over the top with the best riders there. Uh, but I, ran, like, I had to go really, really deep to, to hang on. And then I, I knew if I arrive with the climbers, I'm the fastest in the sprint of the group. So I read an interview in which you said, as a 15-year-old, you did a 560-kilometer race at Oberösterreich-Rundfahrt, no? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's basically like where it started. We did it in a two-man team. Um, yeah, it was just like, just for fun. And afterwards, I got like more serious and I wanted to try like some real races. Um, for, but for sure, it's a completely new experience. I'm curious what to expect in the second or third week. Because till now, my my longest race was 10 days, which was also like long. But now it's double the double the days. Uh. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about the whole situation I'm in right now. I'm just looking forward to the next 21 days here and hopefully I can show myself in some good stages. Came through maybe a little bit of an unorthodox method for Australians, I guess, for the current times. Came through the AG2I development team that I went to St George, which was a real big stepping stone for me and I thought it was probably the best thing for my development and it was in the end. Ended up doing some good results in Australia with the, that Sun Tour Australian Championships and was cut short last year due to COVID, which was going to be a very good year for me. But yeah, I'm here now, so I can't complain. Spain can get pretty windy and like today's like today and tomorrow and whatnot. Just the wind picks up and it's a bit, um, yeah, very stressful in the bunch. But everything else, I think I'm pretty covered on, especially at the Vuelta, the weather, like cold conditions aren't too much of a worry, just the wind mainly. Probably next year I'll have a bit more open of a role this at this world to probably more stages and just trying to develop more and get the legs used to three-week racing. So yeah, we'll see how it goes after these next three weeks and next year will be a big year I think. And just finally something you're you're looking forward to kind of maybe away from the race about the world. Um, the end of the last stage I guess that'd be fun, good to see and have a good night there. 
Corrections Corner, Daniel, there are six 21-year-olds and two 20-year-olds. Tom Pidcock is 22 years and 15 days, or 16 days now, actually. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of young riders in the race, and the riders are getting younger and younger all the time, or perhaps we're just getting older and older. Well, we do, we do get older, Rich. We change. We change countries. You've changed country. You're on, on your way to becoming a Frenchman I left the, 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 <laughs> I can see this the, Fre <laughs> the French have got quite strict rules about that yeah um, yeah I've got a way to go you? I've got a way to go before I could become a Frenchman I think we've well, left Kirkcaldy you now live in France <laughs> and um, no there were what have you got against Kirkcaldy <laughs> nothing, nothing I like Kirkcaldy there's some good golf courses near Kirkcaldy um, but yes, Rich, big life changes. There are, there are people at the Vuelta who, are, who have undergone, who are experiencing similar life changes um, at the moment. I noticed one, or I've noticed one in the last fortnight. There's a rider in this Vuelta España who was Italian two weeks ago and is now Polish. Who is it? He's a former diarist for us. He kept an audio diary for us at the Giro d'Italia last year. Cesare Benedetti, who, who he feels like he needs to, his name needs to be Polishized somehow. We've got El Cid, we've got Caesar, we've got, you know, it's a El Civ, sorry. Anyway, let's hear how this came about. Why is Cesare Benedetti riding at the Vuelta with a Polish flag next to his name? Well, Cesare, a few weeks ago, I noticed that you have officially become Polish. Is that right? And can you tell me what the process was? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, it was 10 days ago. I got a notification from the UCI. I made my request in July. Uh, I actually thought it would start from January, from the, with, with the new season, 2022. But uh, it seemed that... Uh, Things uh, went quicker than I thought, and uh, yeah, I'm now racing on the Polish flag. And we know, is she your partner or your wife is Polish? You've been living there for a while, you speak Polish. But nonetheless, was it a bit of a strange feeling to become a different, you know, to have a different flag by your name? Uh, you know, I've got mm, double passport now. And uh, let's say with, mm, together with, uh, uh, with the support of uh, Polish fans, of uh, uh, all the Polish people involved in cycling, uh, I decided to make this step. And uh, it's also uh, it's very motivating and uh, it's... Uh, the, I, I don't have the, the word uh, for, for, my, for my family, you know, it's a kind of... Uh, uh, yeah, it makes me proud. Yes, Duma. Uh, yes, yes, uh, my family is proud and uh, that makes me proud as well. Yeah, yeah that's uh, it's a new, <laughs> kind of new beginning, you know. A bit too late for the Olympics, but were you also thinking about maybe world championships in the future and, and that possibility? Uh, well, anyway, you know, for the Olympics, uh, you need to wait, uh, I think, three years from the from the moment you, you you've changed. Uh, but no, I wasn't I wasn't really thinking about uh, major races. Uh, I just want to represent the country as well as possible in the race and uh, uh, out from the race. And uh, and I would just race as always and uh, 
uh, we will see what uh, what's coming. But uh, yeah, so if they if they will want me, then uh, with, with pleasure. Yeah. And just lastly, you still got your Italian passport and your dual citizen. But what did your Italian friends and family say? What do they think about it? <laughs> my family is okay. They know I'm proud of my of my Polish uh, Polish life. And uh, I don't know about friends. Uh, that, uh, like close friends, they, they know me, so it's uh, it's no problem. And uh, it's still a recent new. I, uh, I haven't got any feedback yet. And uh, now I'm concentrating on the race, and then you will see. Cesare Benedetti, who fortunately for Bora, well, he was one of the Bora riders who came through unscathed today, wasn't he? Yes, he did, Daniel. Um, a rider who a few years ago now uh, kept an audio diary for us and then two days later won a stage of the Giro. Could it be tomorrow? Unlikely, we'll unlikely to be that. tomorrow. I also asked his teammate Max Schachmann whether he might target tomorrow's stage and he thinks that it's too hard for him, the climb, to pick on Blanco. I mean, what are we expecting? We start tomorrow, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more in tomorrow night's episode. We were reminded of this by our colleague Pete Cousins, who we had dinner with last night. We had a very disappointing dinner. Um, Pete suffered through it as well. But he reminded us that tomorrow's stage starts um, by Sad Hill Cemetery, which features in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. It was built for that film. Sounds like an advert for our podcast. <laughs> Sad Hill Cemetery. Uh, so we'll, we'll 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 check that out tomorrow. And uh, yeah, it's a, a real kind of a tourist attraction these days. I believe. Uh, don't know much more about it, but we'll. Well, Picon Blanco it was visit, sort of visiting there tomorrow. As for uh, the climb, oh, as for the climb, Rich, the Picon Blanco. It's become a bit of a favourite of the Vuelta Burgos in the last few years. There was a stage that, as I say, went over the Picon Blanco and finished back on the plane just uh, well, just over a week ago, won by Romain Bardet, who is here as well. So he will be looking forward to tomorrow. First using the Vuelta Burgos in 2017, winners there, um, Ivan Sosa, Superman, Mikel Landa and Remco Evenepoel. Last one, well, on the previous time, not... Um, in the 2021 edition, 2020 edition, was sort of discovered by, I mentioned Inigo Cuesta last night, and I think there might be a bit of a corrections corner here. I think I said he holds the record for the most Vueltas. I think it's the most consecutive Vueltas. I don't know if that changes things, but 17 consecutive Vueltas. And he um, is from a little village near Burgos. He discovered or he encouraged the organizers of the Vuelta Burgos to include this very steep, very spectacular climb, which um, will host the finish tomorrow. And Rog says, Primoz Roglic, the race leader, says he doesn't know the climb at all. Some breaking news, Daniel. Um, we've just had a latest diary entry from El Siv, Pavel Sivakov. Um, let's have a quick listen to that because there might be some information in that pertaining to the crash today that saw Adam Yates lose some time. Hey guys, yeah, first road stage of the world are done, done and dusted, uh, finished safe and sound, um, yeah, uh, was supposed to be a bit of a crazy day today, honestly, I think uh, everyone was really nervous about that day today, uh, super hot day, super hot stage, we started, um, I could feel a bit of tension, you know, uh, on the start line, everyone was expecting a lot of wind, obviously, the Burgos area is really open, and, um, I've done Burgos last uh, last week, tour of Burgos, and uh, realized that, yeah, I was uh, was expecting a bit of a crazy day, and 
yeah, the innings went. Um, it was a bit more calm than expected. Uh, obviously, a bit of stress in a, in a bunch, as always, on uh, those opening days of a Grand Tour. What well, was El Siv, uh, Pavel Sivakov, with uh, a little bit of his diary? We'll hear more of that and his previous entries of diary. Um, also, James Knox and Joanne Bao, who rides for Uskatel Uskidi. Those three riders keeping all the diaries for us at this Vuelta. Um, and that will be the first episode of Kilometre Zero tomorrow. El Siv, um, continuing this torturous narrative about El Siv. Um, Rich, the, have you ever seen El Siv, the film? With, the, with the Charlton very Heston. famous Charlton Heston I film in I've been reading about it, though. Yeah, uh, did you read, there's a story that caught my eye, that Sophia Loren was the sort of love interest in El Cid, and she sued the production company because on the enormous billboard that was displayed in Times Square after the film was released, her name appeared underneath Charlton Heston's, and this led to a very high-profile lawsuit, apparently. Did not know that. Did not know that. Um, nothing whatsoever to do, to do with, with Welter or... But Pavel it's Sivakov. a film that I clearly need to watch. Um, I, it's called El Cid, isn't it? And it's rated as one of the great epics but you've never of watched the 20th it. century. And I've never watched it. Have you ever watched The Good, The Bad and The Ugly? Yes. Many, many years ago. Yes. Um, but maybe remind myself of that tonight um, with a few YouTube uh, clips from Sad Hill soundtrack, Cemetery. The Good, The Bad and The yeah. Ugly, Enrico Morricone. Yeah, maybe we'll play a bit of that tomorrow night if we can get away with it. Um, but as I said, episode one of Clum Zero will come out uh, tomorrow. Um, and that will feature the audio diaries James Knox, the Koenig, Quickstep, Pavel Sivakov and Joanne Bao. Well, Rich, not too much wine chat tonight, but this is the first stop on our Viticulture Vuelta España in conjunction with Divine Cellars. Uh, the, the Vuelta España selection is still available from Divine Cellars. All the details at www.divinecellars.com. It's Ribera del Duero. At the start today, we were heading towards down towards Aranda del Duero and we headed through the vineyards, didn't we, of uh, the Ribera del Duero region. Um, the first wine in the selection is the ni- 2019 Flores de Callejo. Um, sh- we've not had any. I think um, our, I think the, the Duke of Wellington in not Watford might have had a case <laughs> He's delivered. Imbibing. He's uh, imbibing. But no Andy Hood tonight. No, our colleague from Velo News is not here to, argue to with upgrade you. me for choosing Ribera del Duero instead of Rioja on this lovely, warm, late summer's night. Daniel, um, last night I made my, I, I premiered my incredible Vlasov joke, 3 2 1 Vlasov. And a few people on social media have told me Carlton Kirby made exactly the same joke. Carlton Kirby made exactly the same joke. Extraordinary. Great minds think alike, is all I can say. Uh, are we going to finish for tonight then? Where are we eating tonight? We are eating at uh, somewhere where they will no doubt serve Morcia because I've looked in vain for other local specialities. There don't seem to be too many. I haven't found any queso de Burgos yet, which I was told to look out for. A lovely sort of feta type cheese. Um, but we will report back, Richard, on what specialities we find tomorrow. Who's going to win tomorrow, Daniel? Rog. Rog. Okay, there we go. That's all then for tonight. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, Richard.